Welcome to another episode of Deconstructing the Magic Money Tree. I believe this is episode seven, David. Welcome back to the program. Thank you very much, Mike. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, the last time we uh, were discussing things, we were talking about the types of money, and that discussion led us up to the question of central banking. Uh, we went through fractional reserve banking and so on, and a big part of that discussion was the role of central banks, and we said we would go into that in more detail uh, in this episode. So uh, let's get started on that. And uh, the first question in my mind is, where did central banking originate? And when did central banking originate? The story of the Bank of England is pretty well known. It was established in 1694, just following the so-called Glorious Revolution. And uh, maybe that's where we should start, because uh, the question is, was the Glorious Revolution glorious, or was it the immigration into the UK of Dutch banking interests? Well, that's a very good question. And I'm only now starting to pick around the fringes of this and trying to get a better understanding. I mean, the Bank of England founded on one level by a Scottish crook. And I would point out, as I have in the past, all these people who say it's an international Jewish banking conspiracy. I don't think that's right at all. I think uh, that, that Scots, we take second place to nobody when it comes to international banking conspiracies. We founded the Bank of England, but there was certainly a different sort of country after the Glorious Revolution. There were different influences at work. The state and the bank and the banking sector found themselves in this uh, sort of symbiotic relationship where they were both benefiting hugely. Now, the question is, of course, did the rest of the country benefit hugely or was the rest of the country paying for it all? I mean, this is getting into historical areas that I, I, I don't, I don't feel right now able to be particularly definitive about, but I find the questions fascinating. I'm not really wanting to go into much into too much of the, the history of it, but obviously the next major milestone in the history of the Bank of England, perhaps, as we mentioned last week, was 1844, uh, when the bank was given the monopoly, at least in England, uh, of, well, in fact, it extends to the other countries as well, but we'll explain it with a slight caveat to explain that in a second. But the Bank of England given the monopoly over the, pr the printing of notes. Now, Scottish banking has a very special place in the world, as does Northern Irish banking, although that's, uh, that's much later. But Scottish banking is a special place in the world because, of course, the Scots banks are still allowed to print their own money. But for every pound sterling that a Scottish bank issues with its own brand on it, it has to have one pound Bank of England note in reserve. Yes, or on deposit at the Bank of England. The Scottish banking system historically was a free banking system. How free it was, because the Bank of England did exist, and to a certain extent, the Scottish banking system perhaps sheltered under the Bank of England system. But at least in nominal terms, it was free banking. Now, what free banking is, is every every top has its own bottom. Every bank sits on its own reserves, and this, this was viewed as, as sound Scottish banking principles, as opposed to the frivolous ideas of the Bank of England, which were actually, by this point, viewed in Scotland as being somewhat suspect. The idea was every bank had its own reserve and specie, and that was ultimately what guaranteed everything. And it would issue notes against that, but it could recover it in specie. Now, the problem with this was that the, the reserve ratio was very low, and there was difficulties when banks ran into problems, there was difficulties of getting any specie out of them. So it wasn't quite what it appeared to be. But that was the idea that you had a free banking system in which you didn't need a central bank. But that was happening in Scotland, while in England, just across the border, there was this central bank and it was taking over steadily all of the controls and all of the, the, the privileges of issuing notes. Um, one of the aspects of central banking was then to control the commercial banks 
and be a, what's termed a lender of last resort for the commercial banks, because all commercial banks are essentially bankrupt because they've got the time dependency of their assets and the time sequence of their, their liabilities don't match. A lot of the money they hold is a demand deposit. People could, could um, demand it all at once tomorrow. There's not enough liquidity in the bank to satisfy that. If there's a bank run, if there's a loss of confidence, the bank immediately becomes bankrupt. And one of the central bank features that we've known about for a while is that the lender of, of last resort, if there's a bank run, the central bank will come in and it will it will lend liquid cash into the bank that's having a bank run and hold uh, for that the, the otherwise sound but illiquid assets that that bank possesses and thereby stabilize the system and, and grow confidence. So you get fewer and fewer bank runs. Now, there were quite a lot of bank runs in the early days of the, the Bank of England, but they've pretty much stopped that. Northern Rock was the last one. Part of the institutional framework that gives confidence to the members of the public is that the, the Bank of England is there with apparently unlimited checkbook, and they can lend huge amounts of money into banks and give them liquidity whenever they require. And therefore, you don't need to worry. You don't need to look at the solidity of the bank you're putting your money in. Everything's fine. The government will look after the central bank will look after it. So that's that's one aspect. It's a, it's a confidence thing. And the other another aspect is it they're there to make sure that all the commercial banks inflate together, uh, and it coordinates the, the 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 policies of all the commercial banks. But of course. In recent years, it's doing an awful lot more than that, Mike. Well, actually, historically, it's, it's been doing an awful lot more than that. But we'll come on to that in a minute. Now, other countries established central banks over the decades. And then in 1930, we had a sort of central bank of the central banks established in Switzerland called the Bank for International Settlements. And one of the questions that I have is, what is the re relationship in each country between its central bank and government? And what is the relationship between each country's central bank and the Bank for International Settlements? And therefore, what relationship does the Bank for International Settlements have with each of the national governments? Because yeah, Bank for International Settlements is a very strange beast, because it, it came out of the war reparations from the First World War. So Germany had to pay war reparations. And there was vast sums of money changing hands. It was very strange because America was lending to Germany and Germany was repaying um, Britain and France. And Britain, which was in debt to America as well, was repaying America. So money was going round in strange ways. Um, and this was apparently paying off some of the war reparations. Sounds like a shell game. It, it, it seemed to be a bit of that. And there was a lot of changes of the rules because as Germany hit various problems, the rules were relaxed and relaxed. But it all went through the Bank of International Settlements. And it was called the Bank of International Settlements because it was settling the war debt. It was setting, settling the reparations. It seemed to manufacture for itself a role that was never quite intended when it became initially the Central Bankers Club because it, it, it ran out of Bern in, in Switzerland and it was a, it was a very um, modest office which you would pass in the streets originally, the, the, the office you'd pass in the street and never know it was there. And all of these central bankers would gather there, uh, the head of the Bank of England being this, probably the leading voice who, who called the shots more than anybody else, but obviously the head of the Federal Reserve had a, a huge role too. And they would set policy and they'd set policy in ways which affected nations quite fundamentally. 
and it kind of grew and it saw a chance to establish itself. And even after the Second World War and there was no more war debt and its original reason for existing had been liquidated, uh, it kind of found a new role. And that role was was on, in regulating um, all the central banks and uh, also, we shouldn't actually say, I skipped over the Second World War role there because its role there was extremely murky because we had a situation where you had an aggressive power in Central Europe, namely Nazi Germany, taking over countries. And as they captured central banks, the Bank of International Settlements said, well, we deal with central banks. So there was one scandal. I think it was Czechoslovak gold, if a memory serves. One of the countries that was taken over by Germany had essentially their gold confiscated and handed over to the Nazis, or with the connivance of the Bank of International Settlements. So there was there was certainly some uh, heavily political and, and very questionable policies coming out of there. But no matter, they stabilised the whole things and they created this role for themselves. They've now got a nice big office, very prominent, and they are still very opaque, though. What do they do? You know, how much of the international policy agenda, um, political as well as financial, is actually set there? Well, we don't really know. We got a clue, didn't we, uh, towards the end of Mark Carney's reign as uh, governor of the Bank of England, when we started to hear rhetoric from him with respect to climate change and Agenda 2030, and quite clear statements from Mark Carney that any company which did not move towards or move towards a business model which was considered sustainable in the internationalist sense, uh, in the Millennium Development Goal sense, and therefore a pro-climate change business model, that any such company would go out, would be put out of business, and that any bank, he went as far as to say that any bank that was to give credit to such a company that was against the, the climate change uh, policy, any bank that offered credit to that company would also go out of business. They would be bankrupted. Uh, only a central bank really has the power to uh, to do that kind of thing. Uh, as a, I mean, he's effectively weaponizing the, the, or at least not acknowledging the weaponization of the of the banking system against private corporations and even against private banks. Quite a str- really spectacular position to be in. Yeah, I mean, I was very struck with that at the time be- because. It- I'd not long finished reading um, a book about Bank of International Settlement. Was this the Tower of Basel? The Tower of Basel, yeah. What came across from that is that for most of its life, if you ignore some of the political shenanigans and allowing Nazis to steal countries' gold and stuff like that, if you ignored the tendency to roll over politically and you just looked at its monetary policy, it was actually surprisingly sound it was actually it was a sound money it was a hard money policy it wasn't interested in vast amounts of money printing inflationary policies or anything else like it it was quite consistent in putting that message forward to other banks and to and and to the countries they they represented and then, would I be wrong to suggest that that policy changed in 2008? Well, it certainly changed. I mean, but quite possibly 2008 was the watershed. But at some point, I mean, maybe the 70s, I'm not quite sure when it changed. It certainly did change. What Mark Carney was saying was the complete reverse. 
it was saying, well, we're going to have huge amounts of money printing. We're going to have a, 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 a soft, a, an easy money policy, as far as the eye can see. Um, we're going to be involved in boosting the economy and in deciding what sort of industries are going to be in that economy and what sort of voices can be heard in that society. We're going to do it a lot. So at some point, the Bank of International Settlements has actually morphed into the mirror image of itself. We'll come back to the Bank of International Settlements in a minute, but just to get this relationship, because we're talking about Mark Carney here, this relationship between uh, monetary policy and this, the, the power of the central bank and the relationship to, to government. There's been a, a debate going on for a very long time about central bank ownership. If we take the Bank of England as an example, private bank from the beginning stayed a private bank right up until 1946. And in 1946, it was ostensibly nationalized. And the question on many people's lips is, well, was it really nationalized? Certainly, the British government bought up all the stock that was held in private hands. And that stock is still held by the, tre the Treasury solicitor. The stock wasn't destroyed. So, so the question then, was the bank tr nationalized in a true sense? No matter what happened between 1946 and 1998, of course, the first thing that Tony Blair did when he became prime minister of the country was to make the bank independent again from government. So the question is, was it ever not independent from government? And what is the relationship between the central bank and the treasury? Who holds the upper hand? I mean, you know, there, there are procedures that are gone through whenever a governor is being chosen. And ostensibly, it's the treasury that chooses the next governor. I don't believe that for one second. The Treasury might make the press release and they might uh, rubber stamp the decision. But how do you see that relationship? Well, ever closer. It, it, you're struggling now to get a cigarette paper between the two. Is that because the bankers have taken over the, over the asylum? Or is that because the Treasury is now in control of the central bank? Mm. Let's come back to that question. I'll, okay. I'll, try, and, I'll try and sneak up and surround that one. Okay. <laughs> 28th of August here, I've got the... the, the Governor of the Bank of England, Andrew Bailey, uh, reported in the Financial Times, quote, we are not out of firepower by any means. Uh, and to be honest, it looks from today's vantage point that we were too cautious about a remaining firepower pre-COVID. Uh, he went on, the choice of tool to use is more important than it has been at times in the past. And he, he also talks about uh, quantitative easing. It's, it, he said it shows that going big and fast works best when markets are seizing up. So, right. So first of all, he's not out of firepower. And don't you just love it? The, the Americans do this as well. The metaphors they use, right? We're not out of ammunition. We're not out of firepower. Right? We, we could shoot the economy in the head some more if we really need to. This, 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 <laughs> they use the metaphor of violent conflict, which is really quite interesting that they should use that. Now, he's talking about they've done 745 billion quantitative easing announced so far. That's what's on their website today. And he's saying, well, we can go, we can go more. If we need to do more, we've got, we can do a lot more. So they're going to print and print and print. And the implications of what, of that quote you've just read out, uh, we're not talking about wheelbarrow loads of money. We're talking about... Oh, yeah, um, sports stadium full of money. I mean, it's enormous. And we've got a situation where COVID hit and the bank is essentially financing the government. It's printing money out of thin air and financing the government. That's that's essentially what's happening now. So 
you say, well, who, who's in charge? Well, I'm not quite sure who's in charge, but the bank is printing money on a special power given given to it by the government, and it's printing the money which at the moment is running the government. Right? And it's 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 absolutely incredible uh, the amount of money we're talking about. This is what's going on. So you're looking at that relationship, and it's one beast, whether you call it a bank with a government attached or a government with a bank attached. It's, it's one beast. Is it one based uh, in the UK only, or is it the same in the United States? What about other countries with central banks? So, I mean, for example, in, in the EU, it becomes much more complicated because uh, each, each member state has a central bank, but the European Union has a central bank as well, which is at least notionally based on the treaties, superior to the national central banks. Does the UK have a special relationship with its central bank, or is this something that's that has become the case in in all central bank I mean, areas? Subtle variations, you know. In America, the the, the Federal Reserve is, is is privately owned but heavily regulated. And if you go to Japan, the the, the Japanese government and the Japanese central bank are absolutely joined at the hip and are sharing um, the development of policy. Uh, and yes, you're quite right. There's there's more um, variation in Europe because of the strange uh, structure they've created. But you've got so the Bank of England's I think it's forty five billion a month is currently printing something like that to 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 run yes. the British government yeah. because the taxation money had dried up and they couldn't borrow in the open market really could they? Um, and we're they're now talking about negative interest rates. They're talking about going negative. This is this is some of the ammunition they're talking about having. When you look at the the overall process of where this is going, it's really frightening. M1 in the US, right, which is their narrow money indicator. Between 1980 and 2008, it grew at an annual rate of 8.8%. 2008, financial crisis, Lehman collapse, etc. Up until COVID, it grew at an annual rate of 16.6%. But hey, you know, inflation's 1.6%. Don't don't doubt the figures, you know. But the but that's it, interesting that for over that large period of the time, uh, you said 8.8%. But the U.S. economy sure as hell wasn't growing at 8.8%. It was growing at maybe 1% or 2%. The low 2% if they were lucky. Yeah, yeah. So it's inflation. Right, and then from from two thousand eight till COVID, sixteen point six percent, and since February, it's grown by thirty four percent. That's an annualized rate of sixty eight percent per annum. <laughs> so if you graph this, it's bad, worse, catastrophic. Now I don't know what the next bit of the graph is going to be like, but I don't think it's a return to normal in, in quiet times. And the, the the banks are, it's all about confidence. So the, the, one of the requirements for being a Bank of England, a central banker, is, is to is to you know, look sage-like and confident in whatever you say and talk about you, how much ammunition you've got to fire still and how you've uh, got, you know, plans and, you know, for any eventuality. You've got to generate confidence. But if you look at the figures, what they've done internationally is dig the most enormous hole and I don't see a way out because it, it used to be the central banking had certain roles. It was about, about um, maintaining the banking system 
in a stable fashion and stopping bank runs and bank collapses. And then it became about maintaining the value of the currency. So there was a, a, a non-inflation element came into what they had to do. And then it's about maintaining employment. So that's now written into the Fed's mandate. Like must maintain employment. And the Bank of England's explicit about this, that their role is to see the economy reach some level of comfort, which they define bizarrely as 2% inflation. But but it's also tied in with your job creation and having having sufficient employment and uh, generally a healthy economy. So they've, the, the role of the central bank has become more and more to run the economy. And if you look what they're doing, they've really only got one idea left, which is printing money. They're printing it at a prodigious rate. Where does this go? Because you can't stop doing this very easily. The, the interest rate chart from the Bank of England is quite is quite interesting and funny as well because it, it, it went along and it was sitting at, uh, what was it, 5 6% or something, and then it, it hit um, Lehman Brothers collapse and it fell to a quarter of a percent. And when they tried to put it back up to normal after many years at, at 0.25%, it, it peaked at, at three quarters of a percent. And then it's way back down to 0.1% now. So the, they're committed to easy money. They're committed to money essentially for nothing. And the entire banking system and financial system is hanging on that and is only supported by that. They can't go back. So I, I, I look at this and I think this is, this is uh, an accident waiting to happen. A bug looking for a windshield is an American term to describe it. It's, the whole thing seems unstable. But they give us confidence. Everything's going to be fine. We've got lots of. We haven't run out of ammunition. We can. We can. We've got more firepower, and we're going to see that that everything's okay. By the one thing they actually do, which is make print money out of thin air, and buy stuff, usually government debt. So we are in a position which you think, and I agree with you is ultimately there, there is no escape from it. it. It is going to end badly. No, no escape, and it's also politicised. I, I, it ceased to be about economics some considerable time ago. Now it's about an entire worldview. That's why you're getting the requirements for Agenda 21 um, and, and green technology and all the rest of it coming in, because they're running in all the political ideas that all come from the same place. And that has become the agenda of the banks as well, because the people who have captured so many of our institutions seem to have captured the banks as well. And the, the, way, the way to achieve this is easy money. Is that because uh, they are ideologically aligned with, with the people that created the, uh, the policy of Agenda 21 and Agenda 2030 in the first place? Or is that because... Uh, there's a recognition within the central banking system that that the that the financial system as a whole had been asset stripped to the to the point where it can't possibly continue. I mean, two thousand and eight. Well, we always said that two thousand eight was a a pre a, you know a pre shock. It wasn't the real event. Is there is it because there's a recognition within the central banking system that 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 the financial system as it was was already a done deal. What I'm getting at is that that, that have is it that they've grabbed onto whatever policy they could get their hands on, which which would give them somewhere to put this money that they're printing, which uh, hopefully will will keep 
keep the wheels turning, keep the bubbles inflated? Is that what it is? Or are they ideologically in alignment with the, uh, with the originators of, of the policies in the first place? It's difficult to know. I mean, one element of this, I feel that they've done their deal with the devil, they've sold their soul. Uh, there's no possibility of any central bank turning around to a government now and saying, we need a return to sound money. We need uh, a vast reduction in government expenditure. Uh, we need to end money creation and return to a loan, a loan inflation environment. And we need a huge financial shock to the system until we get the malinvestment driven out of the, the, the real economy. No central banker is going to do that because, well, who appoints central bankers? I mean, it's, it's the, that, anyone who, who would think that that wouldn't get within a country mile of, of the post. Um, they're going to continue with this. And also, now that they're so far down the line, the survival of the financial sector as well depends on the wheels keeping turning. It depends on kicking the can down the road. It all seems very short term. I mean, you, you listen to the, the Bank of England governor, and he's always talking about how we get through the next three to six months. And that's, that's a long-term forecast. There, there is no strategic thinking. It's just... How do we not go under, you know, just around the corner? From what you've said, though, there's no strategic thinking because there's no strategy that can solve this problem. And so it's they are now fully engaged in a firefight. They're just trying to keep the, the explosion, which has already happened. They're trying to keep that, the expansion of the shockwave as, as uh, slow as possible. Yeah, they, they, they've got to a point where they can't change. They are fully committed. They're all in. Because if it goes, it all goes. And it's the same agenda that the governments are following. The, the two are now aligned. One of the things which is most striking when you look back at the figures, if you look at where the ordinary man in the street, the, the manual worker or the, the, the skilled tradesman who's wanting to um, bring up a family, where his income started to fall behind the rising income of the company directors and and the bankers and the fat cats, right? It was it was 1971. Like up until that point, from f as far back as you want to go, the relatively poor people had done relatively well. There was a general closing of the gap, right, between rich and poor. It, it wasn't closing hugely quickly, but it was closing. If the economy improved, if the economy grew 10%, the uh, real income of the poorest 20% of the economy would, would, would be growing a little bit more than 10%. And they were doing, you know, proportionately well. That stopped as soon as the link to gold stopped. As soon as, came, as, soon as the gold window was closed by Nixon, that ended. And ever since then, the rich have done disproportionately well because the rich have financial assets. And the banking system is all about maintaining the value of those financial assets and using it as a lever to allegedly control the economy. The wealth effect is meant to be that if, if financial assets go up, everyone feels wealthier. So they go out and spend lots of money and they buy cars and they renovate their houses. And that, that stimulates the economy. I mean, these are the theories. They're trying to use that very effect to boost the economy overall you only have to look at the figures and you can see it doesn't work the way that what we used to do before 71 worked. The gap between rich and poor has been, has been widening ever since. David, we're absolutely out of time for this episode. I think we haven't really scratched the surface of this yet. But next week, I'd like to maybe look at the regulation of the financial system 
particularly in the last hundred years or so, and how we got to this point. Unless you've got something else that you think is uh, more appropriate, no, we can t- we, we can talk about that. I mean, I think a lot of the a lot of problems come from regulation because it, it creates a lot of perverse incentives and a lot of confidence where there shouldn't be any. Um, so yes, yeah, so let's look at that. That's 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 a, a good topic. Uh, and for this one, uh, I would say that overall. The, the central governments and the central banks are now in lockstep. Or go step. Um, they're going to get or go step. And they're going to continue to the very bitter end with these policies. Um, and when it all goes, it will all go. And it will be an absolutely spectacular crash. And it will be global. And this will be something beyond even what's been imagined in the Great Reset. Because there will be a Great Reset at a time of crisis. And... Uh, there will be things which will become possible for the governments and central bankers to do that would not be possible in any other set of circumstances. And I think that's one of the things that they have up the sleeve when they're talking about firepower. Just as we had the Greenspan put where people were investing in the stock market, knowing that if the stock market fell, Greenspan would print money and lift it back up again so that there really was no risk. We have the same sort of idea on an international scale uh, dealing not with stock prices, but with the, the assets and values and, and, and financial health of countries. The belief is that when it all goes wrong, that emergency measures by all the central bankers will be able to lift it back up again and recreate it as they do and create something afresh, create something that they want to see. Uh, I suspect strongly that that sort of crisis is not very far away. That will become the subject in more depth of a future uh, Deconstructing the Magic Money Tree. Uh, the book that we mentioned earlier on in the program, by the way, was, it was called The Tower of Basil. Can't remember who wrote that. Excellent read. And anybody that's interested in central banking, and particularly the Bank of International Settlements, I think both of us could hardly recommend that book. Oh, yes. It, it was first class. Um, very... Um, it, it gave a it gave a very clear picture as, as to how it emerged and how it, it, it accumulated power and seized power um, almost as a as a thing unto itself. And uh, it was a fascinating read. Some of the things around about the Second World War, for example, were just uh, stunning. Okay, David, thank you very much once again, uh, and uh, thank everybody for listening this week. And we will be back as usual next week. We'll see you then.